Okay, today we're going to be talking about the secession crisis of 1860 and 1861. Now, as the fateful year of 1860 rolled around, and that's where we ended last time, it was clear that the 1860 presidential election uh, would uh, decide the fate of the United States, talk about a critical election. And for the first time, the Republican Party had a real chance to win. And if the Republican Party won, there was a very strong possibility that the South would secede. Now, whether the Republicans would win depended not so much on them, but on the Democratic Party. And as the Democratic Party opened in Charleston, South Carolina in April 1860, it was clear that the Democratic Party was headed for a cataclysmic split. Southern Democrats had been waiting to pay Stephen Douglas back, and Stephen Douglas was the Democratic front runner, uh, to pay him back for what uh, they considered to be his disloyalty to them, uh, his opposition, as I described earlier, uh, to the Lecompton legislature, uh, his Freeport doctrine, in which he argued that practically, despite the Dred Scott decision, uh, uh, the settlers of a territory could keep slavery out of the territory, but by, just by refusing to enforce the Dred Scott decision on the local level. And because of this, the South was now demanding a federal slave code, a federal slave law, to govern slavery and to protect slavery in the territories. And this was the main issue, uh, and the main issue dividing Northern and Southern Democrats at the Democratic National Convention in Charleston. After Northern Democrats, led by Stephen Douglas, voted this slavery code down for the platform, the Southerners walked out. After no candidate could get a two-thirds majority, and the Democratic Party until the 1920s uh, had a two-thirds majority rule uh, 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 to, uh, uh, to nominate a candidate, making it difficult to nominate a candidate, uh, uh, after this two-thirds majority was not obtained, uh, the convention adjourned and reconvened to try again six weeks later in Baltimore, uh, where there was yet another Southern walkout. This time, however, they got the two-thirds and Douglas was nominated. But it was a hollow victory for him. Douglas had pursued the presidency all his life and a number of times seemed to be within range of it. But when he finally gets the nomination in 1860, it becomes a hollow victory. Uh, because of the walkout, it's clear uh, that he can't win. And I've always felt that uh, Douglas in 1860 was a little like Hubert Humphrey was in, uh, 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 in Chicago uh, during the Democratic National Convention in 1968. Another man who had pursued the presidency his entire life, and then when he finally got the nomination, faced a bitterly divided party. I thought there were some parallels there. Now, the Southern Democrats who walked out of the Charleston and Baltimore conventions nominated John Breckinridge of Kentucky, who was actually the Vice President of the United States at the time, uh, uh, as their candidate on a platform of pro-slavery in the territories, of course. And there was a fourth party, the Constitutional Union Party, which nominated a man named John Bell. Uh, uh, the Constitutional Union Party was composed of old northern and southern Whigs, uh, veterans of the uh, Whig Party. Uh, uh, their platform was simple, just keep the Union together, uh, uh, basically viewing slavery as an issue that should not cause secession. You know, it's sort of a let's stay together party. 
So, along with the Republicans, we have a four-party presidential race. Uh, the Breckinridge Southerners, Bell and the Constitutional Union Party, uh, Douglas the Democrat, and Lincoln the Republican. Four parties, uh, the first in history, uh, 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 symbolic of a bitterly and deeply divided nation. Now, speaking of the Republicans, they met in Chicago uh, uh, with the scent of victory in the air. Because of the Democratic split, it was clear that the Republican nominee, whoever he was, would win the presidency. But who to nominate? Well, the frontrunner was Senator William Seward of New York State. But Seward was considered too radical by many, even in the Republican Party basically because of just two statements, two speeches that he made. The first, in 1850, as the nation, or as the Congress, was debating the uh, Compromise of 1850, was known as the Higher Law Speech. Seward said that whether slavery was held to be legal or, legal, or, or illegal by the United States, or, by, or protected by the United States Constitution, which it was, there was a higher law a moral law, God's law, that prohibited it. This got the South, as you might imagine, very angry. Then in 1858, he made what was known as the Irrepressible Conflict speech, where he predicted that the North and South would basically have to come to blows over slavery because there was an irrepressible conflict, an inevitable conflict. Now, this wasn't all that much different than Lincoln's House Divided speech, but Seward had the reputation of being to the left, so to speak, of uh, Lincoln, uh, being more radical uh, than Lincoln on the slavery question. So after a couple of ballots, after uh, on the third ballot, the Republican convention turned away from Seward and to Abraham Lincoln. Now Lincoln, of course, uh, had made his name during the Lincoln-Douglas debates of 1858, which we talked about. Uh, he had advantages as a candidate. Unlike Seward, he was a Westerner, uh, uh, and he could clearly carry the West. Uh, Lincoln was a self-made man. Uh, he was perfect for a party, the Republican Party, that built its, uh, uh, built its pitch to the American people around the idea of free labor. And we talked about the free labor idea uh, uh, earlier. The man who embodied the free labor ideal was Abraham Lincoln. And Lincoln had a winning personality, as we now know. Uh, uh, everybody liked him. Uh, uh, he was a man with very few, if, uh, if any, enemies. Now, in those days, the candidates did not actually go to the convention. Uh, they stayed home and let their underlings and assistants and supporters uh, make the deals and try to round up the delegates for them. So Lincoln was at his home in Springfield and not in Chicago when the Republican convention took place. He told his supporters, quote, make no promises on my behalf regarding jobs. Well, one of his leading supporters said, well, Lincoln said that, but he ain't here, and we are. So, ironically, his supporters made uh, virtually every job in his cabinet uh, uh, put it more or less on auction uh, uh, to gain support to get the nominations. Uh, uh, and basically, Lincoln was surprised to hear, after he got the nomination, that his Secretary of War, his Treasury, Treasury Secretary, and other cabinet positions had already been uh, promised to people. Now, as I mentioned, Lincoln passed Seward and won the nomination on the third ballot. Now, after the nomination of Lincoln, the actual general election, uh, which, of course, took place in November 1860, uh, was somewhat anticlimactic. 
It was clear that the South was lost to Stephen Douglas. He had no chance to uh, win there because of the pro-slavery Breckinridge candidate and the walkout of the Southern delegates. They were very angry at Douglas, and he was angry at them. Uh, the Republican Party uh, had no uh, existence even uh, in the South. Uh, uh, and it was going to be clear that Lincoln was going to probably carry uh, most of the North. Uh, uh, Breckinridge would get uh, uh, most of the South, or virtually the entire South, and then Douglas and Bell, the Constitutional Union Party candidate, would divide up the rest. So it would be, and it turned out to be, a completely sectional victory for Lincoln. He got no votes in the South. And again, to be it really should be emphasized. It's not that he had weak support in the South or little support in the South. He wasn't even on the ballot in the South. It was a completely sectional uh, victory. Now, Given these circumstances, it's not surprising that Lincoln uh, didn't win a majority of the popular vote. Uh, he won about 40% of the popular vote. But he had won in the Electoral College, and Lincoln would now become America's 16th president. Now, the election of Lincoln in November 1860 uh, was, as you might imagine, a crushing blow to the South, although the South should have expected it. The election of Lincoln symbolized the end of Southern political dominance in the United States. Before 1860, nine of the 15 previous presidents had been from the South. And three other presidents uh, who were from the North, uh, 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 Millard Fillmore, uh, who was president between 1850 and 1853, uh, so unimportant that I don't even think I've uttered his name yet, uh, uh, Franklin Pierce, 1853-1857, and Lincoln's predecessor, immediate predecessor, James Buchanan, 1857-1861. While these were not Southerners, they might as well have been Southerners because they were Southern supporters. So realistically, 12 of the 15 previous presidents had either been Southerners or Southern sympathizers. Two-thirds of the speakers of the House of Representatives, obviously another very powerful position, had been from the South. And a majority of the Supreme Court justices had been from the South, including the Chief Justice as of 1860, Roger Tawney, who was uh, uh, from Maryland, uh, considered part of the South, uh, uh, and the author, of course, of the Dred Scott decision. But now, with the election of Lincoln, the South could see its power and its influence starting to slip away. It could envision a tightening knot on its society, with the rope held by Lincoln, who was an anti-slavery man that they considered, the South considered, an abolitionist. Uh, uh, its entire society constricted and trapped. And so, the South decided to launch a preemptive strike, in a desperate attempt to save its way of life, almost a preemptive revolution. On December 20th, 1860, South Carolina voted to secede from the Union. What had been threatened for so long and threatened for so often, so often was now finally a reality. Now, by the end of January 1861, six other lower South states, uh, Mississippi, uh, Florida, Alabama, Georgia, Louisiana, and Texas uh, followed South Carolina out of the Union. And these seven states formed the Confederate States of America, or the Confederacy, in February 1861, with Jefferson Davis, who we'll hear more about later, uh, as the president of this new nation. 
Now, the Confederate Constitution was virtually a carbon copy of the United States Constitution, with the exception, of course, of guaranteeing slavery and guaranteeing slavery in the territories. Now, the Confederacy was obviously founded on different principles than the North, a different idea of equality, a different idea of liberty. And Alexander Stevens, uh, uh, who was the new Confederacy's vice president, uh, expressed this new philosophy, this revolutionary philosophy of the Confederacy. The new constitution of the Confederate states, Stevens said, has put to rest forever all of the agitating questions relating to our peculiar institution. African slavery, as it exists among us, is the proper status of the Negro in our form of civilization. The foundation of the Confederacy, Stevens continued, rests upon the great truth that the Negro is not equal to the white man, that slavery, subordination to the superior race, is his natural and moral condition. Our new government is the first in the history of the world based upon this great physical, philosophical, and moral truth. And thus, after decades of arguing about states' rights and centralized government and property rights, it's out in the open for the South, plain and clear. The Confederacy and the Civil War itself were about slavery, and specifically about the right to keep blacks as slaves. Now, Jefferson Davis himself was embarrassed by this speech by Alexander Stevens, uh, not the last time the two would clash, uh, because Davis wanted to minimize the slavery issue. But here it was. For the South, this war was about slavery, about black slavery, and there was no way to dress it up in any other way. Now, before the shooting actually started in the Civil War, there was a war of words between North and South about the legality and the justness of the act of secession itself. Now, the South put forth a number of arguments to justify secession. First, it argued that the Constitution was created as a compact among the states of the Union, which retained their sovereignty and could legally secede. The South compared the actions of these states to the Revolutionary War Patriots of 1776 and invoked the idea that government rests on the consent of the governed, which the South had been denied. The South that argued that its constitutionally protected property rights were being threatened. And finally, the South argued for the right of revolution itself, which is right in the Declaration of Independence. Now, the North countered those Southern arguments with arguments of its own regarding the South's compact theory of the Constitution. The North argued that the Constitution was a document the people had, engaged, had, 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 uh, had, had made, not the states. Remember, we the people, with the first three words of the Constitution. It wasn't a compact to be broken up. It was a perpetual binding contract. States, the North argued, were just administrative devices with no separate sovereignty, no right of secession. Regarding the government with the consent of the governed argument that the South was making, 
The North said, yes, legitimate government does rest on the consent of the governed, and the Republican Party had won a fairly contested election, the results of which the South now want to overturn. And regarding the right of revolution argument that the South put forth, the North said, in the words of a, northern, uh, a, a northerner, William Cullen Bryant, uh, 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 he said that in 1776, Americans rebelled, quote, to establish the rights of man and the principles of universal liberty. But Bryant, Bryant and other northern, northerners argued that all the South wanted to do here was to protect a, in Bryant's word, domestic despotism, meaning slavery. And so... <laughs> Northerners argue that the South was not at all in the spirit of the Founding Fathers in 1776. Regarding Southern claims of property rights in its slaves, Northerners promised to protect slavery in the South, where it existed. And so, Northerners argued the South was not having its property rights infringed. The North was not uh, interfering with Southern property rights. Now, this argument may have been somewhat disingenuous, since much of the North wanted to abolish slavery in the South, eventually. But Northerners were afraid at this point to come out, you know, right out and say that, uh, uh, to say that all slaves were not legitimate property. This, of course, would come later. And regarding uh, 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 the right of revolution that the South had put forth, Abraham Lincoln had the most succinct northern response to that. The right of revolution, Lincoln said, is never a legal right. At most, it is but a moral right when exercised for a morally justifiable cause. When exercised without such a cause, revolution is no right, but simply a wicked exercise of physical power. And, of course, in the view of the north and in the view of Lincoln, slavery was not such a morally justifiable cause to have a revolution over. So those were the arguments, South and North, or North and South, over the legality and justifications for secession. So in the early part of uh, 1861, uh, while South and North had uh, basic disagreements over the legality and morality of what the South had done, uh, uh, however, one interpreted what the South had done, they were doing it. And as Abraham Lincoln prepared to be inaugurated in March 1861, March 4th, he faced a dilemma. How first to coax the seven seceded states, uh, uh, the southern states that uh, had already seceded, back into the Union? or at least prevent the four states which, as of March 4, 1861, uh, had not seceded, especially Virginia, which is the largest and most powerful and richest uh, southern state, uh, how to keep these states in the Union without at the same time compromising Republican principles, the principle especially of no slavery in the territory. That's why the Republican Party existed. Or compromising the more basic principles of the supremacy of the federal government. Supremacy not just to the states, but to the new Confederate States of America, to the new Confederacy, uh, as well as upholding the general principles of democracy. If you win an election, that should be the end of it in a democracy. You can't leave because you lose an election. So in other words, 
Lincoln uh, uh, didn't want to recognize the new confederacy. He couldn't recognize the new confederacy. But he didn't want any of the four wavering southern states to, uh, to leave the Union. The other three states besides Virginia that, were, that had not seceded as of uh, Lincoln's inauguration, uh, besides Virginia, were North Carolina, Arkansas, and Tennessee. But ultimately, this balancing act by Lincoln proved to be impossible. And Lincoln felt that he needed to hold to the principles of the Republican Party and to his vision of the American uh, nation itself and accept the consequences of war. Now, the first test of Abraham Lincoln's principles came when what was known as the Crittenden Compromise was proposed as a measure of Congress uh, uh, in uh, early 1861. It was proposed by Senator John Crittenden uh, of, uh, of Kentucky, uh, fittingly a border state. Uh, 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 and the Crittenden Compromise, as it came to be known, that's C-R-I-T-T-E-N-D-E-N, the Crittenden Compromise was a series of constitutional amendments. First, slavery would be forever legal in America, uh, 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 or at least where it existed in the South. That would be a constitutional amendment to protect it. Second, the Missouri Compromise Line would be revived and extended uh, to the Pacific, or at least to California, which was already a free state. Uh, 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 in other words, uh, slavery would be legal below that line. Uh, third, slavery would continue to be legal uh, uh, in Washington, D.C., and also on federal property, even if it were in the north, on federal property, uh, meaning like forts, federal forts, uh, uh, even in the north. Fourth, uh, slave owners whose slaves had escaped would be compensated uh, uh, by the federal government. And finally, there would be no interference with the interstate slave trade. In other words, uh, uh, there was a, a business of trading slaves uh, from uh, older states like Virginia uh, to the newer states like uh, Mississippi and Louisiana and Texas, that that trade would not be interfered with. The, in, the international slave trade, meaning importing slaves from Africa, that had been illegal since 1808, and that would continue. But no, uh, no uh, restrictions on the interstate trade, slave trade. Now, on the surface of it, the Crittenden Compromise looked promising. After all, hadn't the Republican Party been founded because the Missouri Compromise was repealed by the Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854? Uh, it was just now putting it back. But too much had gone on since 1854. There was too much water under the bridge. The Republicans had won a presidential election in 1860 on a platform of no slavery in the territories. So the Crittenden Compromise would have them give up on the main issue of the Republican Party's existence. Here there would be slavery in the territories below the Missouri Compromise line. And further... If slavery was permitted below the Missouri Compromise Line, the South could expand slavery to the Caribbean and to Central America. Now, Lincoln, from his home in Springfield, uh, he hadn't yet gone to Washington in early 1861, made the final decision. He would not sacrifice basic Republican principles to appease the South. In other words, unlike Pierce and unlike Buchanan, he would not pacify what he considered to be a spoiled child. And he would take his chances with secession. Lincoln said, We have just carried an election on principles fairly stated to the people. Now we are told in advance, the government shall be broken up 
unless we surrender to those we have beaten. If we surrender, it is the end of us. The South will repeat the experiment upon us ad libitum. A year will not pass till we shall have to take Cuba as a condition upon which they will stay in the Union. In other words, enough is enough. And Lincoln instructed his Republican allies to vote against the Crittenden Compromise, which failed in February 1861. Now, while Lincoln felt that he would take his chances with secession, he did underestimate, grossly underestimate, the uh, pro-secession sentiment in the southern states that had already gone out of the Union. The South had been crying wolf or whining for so long that Lincoln thought that they would never actually go through with secession. And so Lincoln waited with confidence for what he believed were the loyal Southern Unionists, the loyal Unionists in the South, to uh, assert themselves and bring the states uh, uh, back to the Union. Uh, in March 1861, March 4, 1861, uh, Lincoln's first inaugural, inaugural address, uh, uh, he ends with a plea to those Southern Unionists, a very, very eloquent plea, where he asks them uh, to obey what he calls the better angels of their nature, which is a beautiful phrase. But Lincoln was wrong. This time he was wrong, because Southern Unionists, as of March 1861, really didn't exist. And he miscalculated in his view that this was all just a bluff by the South. It was very real. Now, by the time Lincoln actually took the oath of office on March 4, 1861, uh, uh, he was presented with the crisis over Fort Sumter outside Charleston, South Carolina. And by then, he realized that what the South was doing was not a bluff. Now, Fort Sumter was an island fortress uh, uh, in, the, in the harbor. I've never seen Fort Sumter. Has anybody seen it? Anybody ever been to Charleston, South Carolina? It's, uh, it's sort of on an island uh, uh, in, the, uh, in the harbor. Now, as it happens, Charleston, South Carolina, is the very epicenter of pro-secession, anti-Northern sentiment. Lincoln sent an emissary there quietly to check things out uh, in, in the South, and he came back and reported to Lincoln that there was not one pro-Union man in the entire city. Now, when the Confederacy was established, uh, it took over federal forts in the South, uh, 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 and thus it demanded that Fort Sumter, which was held by Northern troops, surrender. First, James Buchanan, the outgoing president, and then Lincoln refused to do so because they realized that surrendering Fort Sumter would be like recognizing the Confederacy, which they said was an illegal government. Now, the Confederacy, of course, wanted to see Fort Sumter given up for the very same reason, recognition. Now, Lincoln also wanted to try to avoid any drastic actions that would drive the Upper South, and especially uh, Virginia, uh, uh, out, of, uh, out of the Union. Because uh, uh, certainly uh, without Virginia uh, in the uh, Confederacy, uh, it was vulnerable economically. Uh, uh, whatever manufacturing uh, the South had, uh, uh, it was in Virginia. It was, it was vulnerable militarily. Uh, obviously, uh, uh, if Virginia is in the Union, the Union gets a head start. Uh, in terms of uh, in terms of pacifying the Confederacy, they start from the uh, C Virginia uh, uh, North Carolina border. They don't start from Washington D.C. Uh, and Virginia also had a, a huge number of talented generals, uh, not to mention Robert E. Lee. So they, the Confederacy really needed Virginia, and Lincoln knew it. 
Now, complicating Lincoln's decision as of March 1861, as he faces the Fort Sumter crisis, uh, and he was told on his, I think he was told literally at his election ball uh, 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 by, uh, uh, by one of his advisors that, that Fort Sumter was not going to be able to hold out for more than just a couple of more weeks because they were, they were being blockaded. They'd be starved to death. So he knew he faced a crisis. Uh, 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 you know, the idea that, that Fort Sumter was, was out of food uh, and was going to be out of food uh, basically meant that the clock was ticking for Lincoln and he had to make a decision within a reasonable amount of time because they'd be starved out uh, if they weren't resupplied. And this is the first crucial decision, the first of many in Lincoln's presidency. And Lincoln said later that these first days of his presidency, as he confronted the Sumter crisis, were the worst and most tension-filled uh, of his presidency. Lincoln wanted to assert federal control over Fort Sumter. You know, this was symbolic. But he also did not want to precipitate a violent confrontation to alarm the southern states, especially Virginia, that had not seceded. Now, after much agonizing, Lincoln concluded that even giving up Fort Sumter, even surrendering Sumter, would not be enough to stop secession, uh, of the, uh, even of the Upper South, even of Virginia. That there would be always another Sumter, another test of his principles, another test of the sovereignty question, uh, the recognition question of the Confederacy in the future. So it might as well come now. Lincoln also decided that the basic principles of federal authority, of anti-slavery, and even free labor society were worth fighting for, even at the risk of the disillusion for, the time, for a time of the Union itself. Now, one can only imagine the magnitude of this decision that Lincoln had to make, uh, the most difficult, I would argue, that any American president has ever had to make. Now, Having made his decision to assert federal authority at Fort Sumter, Lincoln, in his implementation of that decision, showed his great instincts as a politician. Lincoln was a great politician, a great instinctive politician, great timing. Knowing that war now must come, Lincoln resolved to maneuver the South into firing the first shot of that war in the hopes of uniting a very fractious and disunited North. Remember, there's a very strong uh, Democratic Party in the North that wants to pacify the South. Now, as we know from our reading, Lincoln decided to announce in advance that he would make an attempt to resupply Fort Sumter with food, but food only, not with guns. A mission of mercy for starving men, as it were. Placing the South, not only in the position of firing the first shot, but firing on a ship bearing food. An enraged Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederacy, realizing that he had been outmaneuvered by Lincoln, and this would not be the last time this would happen, ordered Confederate troops in Charleston to fire on Fort Sumter before the supply ship even got there. And at 4.30 a.m. on April 12, 1861, Confederate guns opened fire on Fort Sumter and the Civil War began. After Fort Sumter surrendered, and it did quite quickly, uh, uh, events began to move. Uh, Virginia and the rest of the Upper South seceded, so now there were 11 states in the Confederacy. 
Lincoln called for and got from an enraged, and at least for the time being, united North, 75,000 volunteers to crush the rebellion of the South, and he always called it a rebellion, not, uh, not recognizing the Confederacy. And Lincoln called Congress, what remained of it, the South had gone, uh, uh, into a special session, fittingly on July 4th, 1861, to plan the Northern response to the rebellion. And both sides, North and South, prepared for what each assumed would be a short, painless, and decisive little war. As we know, of course, they were both horribly and devastatingly wrong. Now, the sheer carnage and tragedy of the Civil War have led historians uh, for generations to argue about the circumstances of the outbreak of the Civil War in 1861 and the events of the secession crisis and the months between Lincoln's election in November 1860 and the Fort Sumter attack in April 1861 have been some of the most studied and written about events in American history. Yet, to me, it always seemed futile to microanalyze the secession crisis. And you have a lot of historians who just microanalyze every day what, you know, what happened, you know, looking for possible ways out of the crisis. By 1861, with the weight of almost a century of prior history upon him, there may have been no way out for Lincoln and also for the North and the South. Very rarely in American history do issues arise that are so fundamental, so basic, they do not admit of the usual compromises and adjustments and different splitting, which is so characteristic of the American democratic system. But slavery was clearly one of those issues. Abraham Lincoln, as usual, put it most succinctly. In a letter just before the Civil War to Alexander Stevens, the Confederate vice president, and a good personal friend of Abraham Lincoln, Lincoln wrote, You think slavery is right and ought to be extended, while we think it is wrong and ought to be restricted. That is the only substantial difference between us. Abraham Lincoln understood that slavery was a fundamental national issue, not a local issue, that did not admit of splitting the difference, one that went to the basic character of America as a nation, to the definition of liberty, to the definition of equality, and that this issue was not a majority rule issue, as attractive as that option might have seemed to men of more limited vision, like Stephen Douglas, who held it out, popular sovereignty, as a tantalizing but ultimately futile way of avoiding the implications of slavery in America. Abraham Lincoln understood that America had to confront this issue head on, and that the price for doing so would be high, and higher, as it turned out, than even he realized. To a large degree, we are still paying this price today. And so the Civil War came, and Abraham Lincoln let it come, believing that the way of peace was not always the way of justice.